Welcome back to Lower Decks, a Star Trek Discovery podcast by Clay Temple Media. I'm Glenn McDorman, and even though today is Thanksgiving, my shipmate keeps making me have black bean burritos and green tea. And frankly, <laughs> it's annoying. <laughs> uh, yeah, I would do that to you. That's fair. And I'm Valerie Hoagland, and upon arriving to my family home for the holiday, there were two items at my bedside table, a bottle of champagne and a book called Star Trek Cats, (laughs) because my family knows me. What is in Star Trek Cats besides Spot and Cat Spa? It's really, really good. I do. I mean, I don't mean to do a plug, but I had seen some of these drawings on Instagram before. It's a book by Jenny Parks, and it's TOS, Star Trek Cats, to be clear. And they're just adorable drawings with different cats as the main characters acting out fun little scenes. Some of them are playing tri-dimensional chess. Scotty drinks some scotch. <laughs> it's, it's actually really great. <laughs> We should do a next generation one, or some somebody should, so that so that there can be cats at our uh, speakeasy in the Jeffries tubes. Yeah, I mean, I hope she's already working on it. It's it's actually really great. She thing I'd never thought I'd say. She's really captured the essence of the characters in the cats. <laughs> so, in addition to talking about Star Trek cats today, we're wrapping up Discovery's first story arc. But before we get started, Glenn, you want to let listeners know about another project you've been working on. That's right. I do another science fiction podcast with my good friend and army comrade, Brandon Buda. He and I are reading through the works of the science fiction writer Gene Wolfe, who is one of the few writers to be awarded the bizarre title of science fiction grand master by the Science Fiction and Fantasy Writers Guild. And this is a list that also includes Robert Heinlein, who wrote Starship Troopers, Ray Bradbury, who wrote everything, I guess, and (laughs) Harlan Ellison, who infamously wrote the first script for the TOS episode, The City on the Edge of Forever. And Wolf also started writing just as TOS was airing. And there are a lot of thematic parallels that have been really fun for me to uncover. Uh, Maybe less fun for Brandon to hear me try to relate every story back to Star Trek, but (laughs) it's been a lot of fun for me. So uh, most people have probably never heard of Gene Wolf, but the podcast is designed so that you don't have to have read the stories to listen to the show. We recap everything for you. And and really what we do is dedicate the bulk of the show to discussing the themes uh, and in particular, the philosophical questions that his stories raise. So if you're interested in robots or if you are interested in theology, and maybe especially if you are interested in the intersection of robots and theology, uh, <laughs> please check us out. Uh, we're the Gene Wolfe Literary Podcast. There are about a dozen episodes available now, and we'd love Love to have you join us. Glenn, that title sounds like one of those things that you can buy for 99 cents to get an honorific after you get ordained online by the Universal Life Church. (laughs) (laughs) I I don't know if anyone else has uh, married any of their friends, uh, performed a ceremony or knows about this. But what is it? Grand Master? Grand Master. Yeah, they started this award in the 70s. It's basically a Lifetime Achievement Award for science fiction and fantasy writers. But I would love to know the history of, you know, to see the notes of the meetings where they're deciding which title they should use and who came up with that. I, it's, 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 it's kind of embarrassing, frankly. I think it's amazing. And, you know, once I get past my jealousy that Brandon has such a good last name, I mean, Brandon Buddha, that's just not fair. 
I, I will say that I'm grateful for having listened to the Gene Wolf Literary Podcast because now I have named one of my plants after a character in a Gene Wolf story. <laughs> so if you too want a Johnny Bananas in your life, uh, head on over to the Gene Wolf Literary Podcast. Uh, it's pretty fun. Thank you for the the plug and the vote of confidence, Valerie. But that's probably enough about robots and theology. And uh, probably it's time for us to talk more about spore drives and Klingons. Today, we're back in your podcast feed without an episode to recap, but we just wanted to talk about this first story arc and take a moment to to ground ourselves and to think about this journey that we've just completed. So today, we're going to talk a little bit about broadly our assessment of these first nine episodes, including just, you know, the general development of the series, what our favorite episodes are, and how Discovery diverges from the main Trek paradigm. Then if we have some time, we're going to talk a little bit about Klingons, because gosh, we haven't talked about those enough, and we never tire of it. (laughs) Um, Maybe we can throw in some things we didn't get to say, or that we want to... um, you know, hammer home again from from our previous discussions. And then as promised, we're going to have a first story arc wide smooch, Mary kill and cocktail hour at the end of the episode. And we'll offer some speculations and predictions as well uh, before we go on hiatus with Discovery. Well, Valerie, let's start by talking about maybe our overall assessment of this first half season as a whole. And I think probably the best way for us to access this is to really talk about how your opinion and maybe your engagement with the show changed uh, from episode one to episode nine. In our last podcast, you talked about how this was the episode that finally brought you fully on board with Discovery. And I wonder if you could just Tell us a little bit more about what that journey was like for you and what it is that brought you on board. It's a great question. And it's so mostly it's a feeling. We can articulate why we love Star Trek so much. But at this point, it's all so nostalgic that it really just makes us feel good. Right. So at the core of everything, I just wanted to feel good about Discovery. And, you know, some some listeners have hopped on to to the forum over the last week and pointed out we really didn't start in a place that felt good. And somehow we ended up really far away from that place. It's kind of remarkable that from in, in that in the span of nine episodes, we've gone from we think Lorca is, you know, the evil captain of, you know, a section 31 science vessel full of bad guys. And, you know, in the first episode, it even seems like Saru and Kayla and all these people are almost being held there against their will. And the ship is very somber and scary. And in episode nine, we have this little happy family. And it really, really doesn't feel like that anymore. So I think the show has changed a lot in nine episodes. And that is a big contributing factor to me feeling differently about it. Would you would you agree with that? I would agree with that. And I want to uh, point some attention to something that a listener actually wrote on the, the forum. This listener had a really good uh, explanation of part of why the show changes, the feeling of the show changes, is not so much that there's something changing on Discovery, but that Burnham is changing, that we see everything from Burnham's perspective. And so those first two episodes on board Discovery, when we're all 
completely convinced that Lorca is bad, that he is Section 31, that everything that's happening on this ship is a war crime, that we, we get from there to it feeling like a family because this is what Burnham is seeing when she shows up and she gradually warms up to it as she builds relationships with people on the crew. She herself starts to feel more like this is a home and like these people are a family for her. And so we feel that way too. And I thought that was a really brilliant observation by our listener. And I I couldn't agree more. You know, I did recently rewatch these episodes and in the first uh, and it's episode three. It's the first time that Burnham is on Discovery after the two-part pilot. And that's where you really get this somber, scary tone. And everything feels frightening and like there's something to hide. And the looks that are given to Burnham, like she sees Kayla in the in the mess hall, are as if Kayla has something to be ashamed of and, you know, looks kind of away. Looks away when, when Burnham looks at her. And given just like the mood that is being set on the ship, it feels as if Kayla has something to hide or Kayla is ashamed of being there. But what your reading offers is that literally the mood through which we see the ship is Burnham's mood. It colors how they're filming it and they're really giving us that Burnham's perspective. So in like in that moment with Kayla, Kayla doesn't have something to hide. She's not being held on a ship against her will. It's just that, you know, she doesn't want to see Burnham because Burnham just called, caused all this death and destruction. And Burnham herself feels ashamed looking at her. And that's being reflected in the entire environment around her. For me, anyway, I don't want to speak for you, Valerie, but for me, certainly at the beginning of the series, although I was very interested in it and thought it was well produced and really loved it. I had a lot of anxieties about how Trek it was. We've talked a little bit about that in some of those early episodes. And these are conversations also that you and I had privately year a year before the show uh, even aired as, as it was being announced that our concerns about whether or not Star Trek, the Star Trek we love could really exist or at least thrive in the modern television climate. But I was really pleased. Uh, I think where we end up in episode nine felt to me like the best Star Trek that we could get in a TV climate that's about serialized dramas about antiheroes. To me, this was this was better than I expected, and I don't think I could be happier with it. How, how did you feel? I don't want to be unappreciative of a lot of the things about the show that you just mentioned, because because I am appreciative of them. I think that my greatest anxiety when the show started was that they'd mess it up and not that they'd mess it up because it wouldn't be the same sort of episodic trek structure that i'm used to i felt actually very certain that we were going to get that which is funny now but just that they wouldn't respect the show that that it wouldn't have depth that it wouldn't ask us, you know, difficult moral questions or get us thinking and that they would kind of disregard the canon even though they had placed their sel- themselves within it. So that's what I mean by mess it up. I thought they would kind of disrespect it. And that's the suspicion that I came into the show with. And I think that if you go back and you listen to our episodes from the beginning of the show, you hear a lot of frustration coming from a place of suspicion and distrust with the writers and with the show and how they are 
treating this, you know, fragile thing, you know, like they're holding something glass and I'm nervous they're going to open their hands and it's going to shatter at any moment. And every cliffhanger they gave us, I had that anxiety relived of like, nope, next episode, they're going to pick it up. They're not going to do it right. And so to answer you know, your first question is that by the time we got to episode nine, they had done it enough times. They had picked it up correctly after the cliffhanger. They had shown me in so many big and small details that they did respect the show and what it stood for and its intricacies. And they even seemed to love it for that because the attention to detail they have put into making this show part of the Star Trek universe is really just insane, beyond what I could have possibly expected. Yeah, and I'll say, frankly, that's not a job I would want. (laughs) This is a nightmare scenario, I think, for a writer to have to wrestle with 50 years of canon, hundreds of stories, nearly a thousand stories, actually, that we see on screen in the Star Trek universe. And you, you you have to tell new stories that are in accord with everything that's ever been said or shown in each of those and all of those, that's a, a tall order. And I think that these writers, these producers have done a pretty amazing job of it so far. And, you know, I think they really did give themselves a tough job with where they put themselves in the timeline, the characters that they decided to include, the topics that they decided to touch on, you know, putting the Klingons at the center of this story, put them in a really difficult position, you're right, that I completely don't envy. It's so easy to be a person, you know, on the internet, go look up one fact that they did wrong and then point it out, right? Um, much harder to keep all those facts straight yourself as as the writer. One way to avoid doing that would have been to give us a show farther into the future, you know, give us a, a post Voyager or a post Nemesis show, something that's a hundred years after that. And I do still wish they had done that. That is what I wanted the show to be. When it first came out that they were putting it at this place in the timeline, I was disappointed because I wanted to see, I wanted a vision for the future. I have looked to Star Trek and and as a society, in a lot of ways, we have looked to Star Trek to see what we can do technologically, but also philosophically and morally, like what is achievable and, you know, looked at some warning signs of, of ways that that could go wrong or if it did go wrong, how we might recover. And I wanted this new version of, of a utopian future or a utopian future pushed even farther and that would have allowed us to, I think, stay in, in a similar episodic structure, et cetera, et cetera. So a lot of how I was reading the show was also colored by my frustration with that, that I didn't want to be where they had put us. So it took me time to, to not only trust them, but to accept that this is where we were and allow myself to enjoy it. And I wonder if listeners or other viewers have felt this or Glenn, even if you have felt that, if you were battling that frustration. I really wasn't, but I did have a lot of trepidation, a lot of anxiety about the show coming in. For me, the news about what the show was going to be that made me feel anxious was the press release that said that this was going to be about the Klingon War. I was very concerned that we were just going to get science fiction war porn with some Star Trek, with like a Star Trek veneer on top of it. 
That for me was what I was very anxious about. But the show has not been that. It's not been that at all. Uh, And I've been I've been very pleased with the way that the war is being handled as a device for exploring moral issues, which is what Star Trek is supposed to do. And I've been really, really grateful for that. So how is it that you you think that they have been able to so successfully handle that? Well, I think the meta answer to that question uh, is that they hired good writers. I think that's a, uh, that's probably the first step in in doing that. Uh, and they hired writers and and producers who think about these issues a lot, whose work in Star Trek has already dealt with some of these issues. Nicholas Meyer is probably a real good person to to point to there, but also Joe Minoski as well. So I think that that was probably a real big step. But in terms of writing craft, the idea of the spore drive does a number of things for the show. One of the one of the things though that it does for the show is that it allows the show to be about one crew while also being about the larger war, but also gets to be about science and uh, allows us to explore all sorts of metaphysical questions that that Star Trek likes to pose uh, along with these moral questions. So I think the the spore drive was a pretty ingenious plot device that they came up with. You know, thinking about the spore drive, again, I'm trying, your original question to me was it was a great one, but it has many complicated answers of how did I get from how I felt in the beginning to how I feel now. I had no idea what was going on, you know, and and there's still so many things that we don't know what's going on with. And, you know, we can save that for our speculations, our predictions. But if we remember when we got the third episode and we went on air, we were like, what is a spore drive? I don't understand. Something about mushrooms? You know, and the internet exploded with, you know, YouTube videos of theories about how a spore drive works and what it, what's going on because we only got two lines about it. And what's been really remarkable about this show is how much they've packed into nine episodes. And in any given next episode, they could go a thousand different places. They could pick up one of many threads that they have given us because every moment is so jam-packed with with thought or, or, you know, cookie crumbs for something to come. And so it makes it really difficult sometimes to see what's going to happen next or which thread we're going to pick up on next. But because it's so complex and there's so much going on, in the beginning, I was just... I had a hard time wrapping my head around all of it. And I was going, what is this show about? What is this show doing? What is the discovery? And now at least we know it's about a certain set of characters that we're pretty sure are going to stick around. And at least we have that, you know, we're on the ship and we're with these people. And as Burnham has come to really, I think, love being on that ship and being with those people, uh, it's helped me settle into that as well. And and if our listener is correct, which which I believe that they are, that what's really been happening is we have the feeling, the entire feeling of the show has been reflective of Burnham's feeling. They did an amazingly subtle job achieving that goal because it really did take me along on that ride to not be given an objective point of view about what's happening on this ship and what's happening in the war, but to have a subjective one that allows me to kind of unknowingly mirror Burnham's emotional journey. And that's, that's pretty remarkable. 
it's a bold decision as well to let us feel uncomfortable and not at home as an audience for several episodes for nearly a quarter of a season. And in, in some ways, I mean, we might we'll want to reassess this maybe once we have the complete first season, but it's uh, in some ways this first story arc feels like one extended pilot for a show that is still yet to come. And in it being one long pilot, that also kind of gets at this idea that like, oh, they they put this there, they put that there, that I was just saying there's so many threads to pick up on. And by giving us this extended pilot, they've been able to show us everything that they're capable of doing. Now, I think that we wanted them to do one thing, right? We wanted them to fit perfectly into the Star Trek paradigm and give us the structure that we're used to, but in a new setting. But instead, what they've done in these nine episodes is say, hey, I can do a Trek episode like this. I can do a Trek episode like that. And then one like this. Look, I'm capable of all this stuff. I'm doing it well. I'm respecting the canon. Trust me. Now let's get on with the show and hopefully we'll continue to display those things to you, right? They can do a scary episode. They can do a a time travel fun episode. They can do a we're on a planet episode. And they just really spend some time opening my eyes to what they might give me should this show be able to go on, which now we know that it will. But on the flip side of that is some frustration that they keep giving us stuff that we don't then get to follow through. Well, and maybe that's in some ways, I think that's the price that we pay for having this show from Burnham's perspective or from the perspective of Burnham and other non-bridge people, right? This is the show is is very unique in that although we have a captain and we see things from his perspective uh, quite frequently, the show really is driven. The real agents of the action on the show are these non-bridge officers. Uh, it's it's Burnham, it's Cadet Tilly, it's Stamets, and then also Tyler, who's probably the closest thing we get to a bridge officer who's really active on the show. And it's a very different feeling. It's, it's, it's really, in some ways, it's like watching a Star Trek show that's more concerned with the away mission than with what's going on on the ship. Interesting. Yeah, that's a really great way of putting it. And it, it explains some of the trouble that I have felt and that maybe Glenn, you have also felt getting our footing on discovery because the way we used to, the way we are used to grounding ourselves in a Star Trek show is going, who's the captain? Who's the first officer? Who's the doctor? Who's the engineer? I have all my people. Maybe one of them is new, you know, like Troy having a counselor role introduced or something. And now let's go. (laughs) And we don't even have that yet. Really? in this in the way that we're used to yeah that's right i mean we have we're missing an awful lot of character archetypes in this show i guess in some ways stamets is filling in for the engineer but surely on discovery there is someone some officer some lieutenant commander who is responsible for the warp engine and we don't know who that person is we've never met that character we've still not met as you and i were agonizing about in the last episode we've still not met the chief medical officer the person we normally refer to as the doctor we haven't met that person the one doctor that we do know we know mostly just as Stamets' partner, though I, I assume that will start to change when we come back in January. But we're missing those archetypes. We don't have a ship's counselor. And and all of those people we do see on the bridge, Kayla, an impossibly handsome bridge guy, we see those people. They're on the bridge doing stuff, 
but we don't know who they are yet. And this is a real, this is a real divergence from the traditional Trek paradigm. Right. It's interesting. We know where they all sit, but they don't really ever say anything, which has to be very frustrating for the people on the bridge, that the people who aren't on the bridge are the ones, you know, getting a lot of the talk time. <laughs> like, and not from an actor's perspective, but just from a, you know, it's like if you're a bridge officer and these other kids keep crashing the party, you'd be pretty frustrated. Yeah. Well, I look forward uh, late in Discovery's run when we get an episode entitled Bridge Crew, in which they just complain about the Lower Decks characters. It'll be a real inversion of the whole thing. I hope they put the whole series on hold and make that episode 10. I wouldn't, I would, I would be pretty excited about it. Um, but, but yeah, yeah, no, Glenn, these, this is all, you know, we've talked a lot about the ways that the show diverges from the Trek paradigm in terms of structure, but in terms of perspective and just like who are our main characters, that's another huge way that they're doing it. Yeah. And we've mentioned already that one of the divergences from the Trek paradigm, at least as we know it from TOS and TNG and Voyager is that the show is largely serialized, that these episodes that we're watching are not inherently standalone. Now, Deep Space Nine did a lot of long-form storytelling, and Enterprise's last season was entirely made up of three or four episode story arcs that wouldn't make any sense if you jumped in in the middle of them. And wasn't season three of Enterprise one long story arc? Yes, that's right. That's exactly right. So we've seen Trek going this route, but I think that probably for most viewers, we still, you know, TOS and TNG in particular are the sorts of, of Treks that we, we hold up as being the mold and we hold up as being the paradigm and, and Discovery is doing something different from from that. You know, another way it was a brave choice is that, you know, the season three story arc of, of Enterprise with, with the Zendi was not well received you know i it felt like that was the the nail in the coffin of we're not going to try this again you know based on how how it was received yeah that's right though i i loved it and i love it every time i rewatch it i'm i'm <laughs> i'm an enterprise apologist if ever there was one for sure <laughs> yeah we both are it's probably our fatal flaw well since we're talking about episodes valerie why don't we launch into a discussion of what were our favorite and our least favorite episodes. And I'll just put the question to you as succinctly as possible. And I'll ask, what was your favorite episode of this first story arc? It's such a hard question. Because, you know, I think anyone who ever asked me what my favorite anything is, really instantly regrets it. Um, (laughs) Because then I divide types of favorites. I'm like, well, you know, one of them might have been my favorite conceptually, and another was my favorite to actively watch, and another is my favorite for blah, blah, blah. But I'll give them to you with those two main categories. The last episode, episode nine, was my favorite episode to watch. I was able to like completely let go, right? That's the moment that I trusted them, and they had this really edge of your seat narrative driving everything forward, and somehow they did in a way that like the quick editing... Um, style that's very been very popular for a long time now, which I usually dislike, was working on me. It, it made me feel excited and and like I was driving through the episode with force. But still, episode I'm most grateful for existing is magic to make the sanest man go mad. All right. Well, I want to uh, let's focus on that one then, Valerie, because I'm, I'll tell you right off the bat that remains my least favorite episode. No. And so I would love to hear you make a make a case for it again. You first. 
Well, I'll start by saying that we have not yet gotten in Discovery an episode that I think is terrible. And we certainly don't have an episode that I just won't watch again unless I'm doing a hardcore rewatch. Most of the other series have at least one episode that is like that for me and for, I think, most fans. For TOS, for example, uh, Wolf in the Fold, the one uh, that about Jack the Ripper that is really just oozing with uh, pretty gross misogyny. You know, I'm just not going to watch that one again unless <laughs> I have to. I'm not going to watch Threshold from Voyager. This is the one where Captain Janeway and Tom Paris turn into salamanders. I'm not going to watch that unless I have to. Discovery has not given me an episode like that. So when I say that Magic to Make the Sanest Man Go Mad was my least favorite episode, you know, if it was a paper I was grading, I'd give it a B minus, maybe even a solid B. You know, it just wasn't wasn't in the A range for me and where I think most of the other episodes actually probably were for me. But to answer the question more uh, honestly about what I didn't like about it, my only real criticism of that episode, as fun as it was to watch Rain Wilson be Harry Mudd, and as much as I enjoyed the disco on the disco, I just didn't feel like the writing or, or the, really the story crafting was that good. The plot about Burnham and Tyler getting together is pitched to us largely through the voice of Stamets. It's pitched to us as being the only way to beat Harry Mudd. But in the end, nothing that happens during that whole part of the show actually has anything to do with how they defeat Harry Mudd. And that was a that was a problem that I just that just gnawed at me, I think, even while I was watching it and certainly while I was thinking about it for for us to talk about. Yeah, I remember it's all coming back to me now, Glenn. I remember <laughs> these <laughs> these um these complaints that, that you had. And they're not invalid. And I think as listeners might have picked up on, I tend to like stuff that's not that good. <laughs> Um, it's, you you know, when it's in a, in a encased in, in something that I trust and love and where I do think the story writers are are onto something, I do really appreciate just a campy, fun, hand-waving, not everything makes sense kind of, kind of thing. I like mystery science theater because they show, you know, such B and C rate movies. I love Buffy because it is just really just the queen of campy stuff within a great storytelling universe. And and you know, Glenn, that I tend to not like the more serious seasons of Buffy as much as I like the campier earlier seasons, which is, you know, an argument we have a lot. And and as you as we learned last week, I really like Sliders, uh, which I will say is a show a bit lacking in substance comparatively <laughs> to, <laughs> to, to the rest. But uh, so that was that episode for me, right? That was the one episode we have in the nine that that was in that spirit. And I'm a sucker. I'm just a complete sucker. It was fun. And I don't watch a lot of TV dramas. I don't like to unwind with heavy stuff or scary stuff or violent stuff. I like fun stuff with substance. And they gave me that little breath of fresh air. Well, I think I'd like to hear next what was your least favorite episode. Just to, we'll play a little game here to see if it's the one that I have in my back pocket as my favorite. Uh, we'll, we'll we'll see. I think the odds are actually pretty high. That's a great question, Glenn. I think <laughs> been going on and on about how much I love this show, but I will say that uh, that of the nine, there are three that come to mind that I didn't love as much as the others. 
I didn't like the violence in Choose Your Pain. I was a little overwhelmed with the Sarek story in Letha. And I was kind of disappointed with the away team on a planet aspect of Siwi's Pakum. So I'm not sure I could choose between them. There's no one episode that I really, really dislike. There were just a few things in each of those that were not my favorite. Well, none of those was my favorite episode, so I feel I feel good about that. Though also then feel like a jerk for uh, for making your favorite my least favorite. But I think on on you know on some reflection, for me, my favorite episode was the fourth episode, uh, the butcher's knife cares not for the lamb's cry. This is the last episode with Landry, and I'm still mourning her loss. She was going to be the Tasha Yar that we were promised in The Next Generation and never got. And then <laughs> again, we are still not getting her. Uh, so that loss that loss continues to hurt me. But this is also the episode in which Lorca gets on Stamets's case for still trying to be a civilian. Uh, this is the episode where Lorca plays over the the speakers, the the sounds of this mining colony as it's right. under attack. And in that moment in particular is a moment that I think really is going to stand out for me in all of Star Trek. Uh, and I think, you know, a lot of his, this spoke to me as someone who spent 10 years of his life being in the military or working for the military as a civilian uh, and being engaged in war uh, for nearly a third of my adult life. Uh, this scene in that episode really spoke to me and spoke to my own experiences in a way that I found really insightful. It actually made me think about those experiences again in a new way, and I was really grateful for it. Sticking with the theme of what a tough job these writers have in our current cultural climate, giving us a show that is so much about the military and knowing that vets and people still in the the military are going to be watching it and how they might have to handle that carefully for a variety of reasons. A huge one being just, you know, handling PTSD carefully, you know, showing it, giving it its screen time, naming it for what it is, but then not messing it up. It's it feels really good for me to hear you say you feel like they've handled all all facets of that pretty well. Yeah, I really think that they have. I know that you, you've you not cared for the graphic violence. I'm not sure that I care for it either. I am actually a pretty squeamish person about seeing that sort of stuff on TV, though I will say it hasn't bothered me in Discovery. But I do think that that, that is a necessary part of showing us the trauma of war, which they have done an expert job of and is, is something, again, that I also that I also really appreciate about the show. And I think that this, you know, you have pointed out throughout uh, our our coverage of these episodes that this show is really dealing with mental health in a way that no show ever has before no star trek show ever has before even you know the next generation that which explicitly put a a counselor a therapist not just on the ship but often on the bridge right next to the captain uh didn't really deal with these mental health issues at all no, it w- it was there, but it was much more superficial, you know, and maybe we just weren't ready to have to have that conversation yet. But yeah, I think a way to maybe wrap up this entire discussion of how do we feel about where the show is and what they've done with it? How do we feel about how it fits into the Star Trek paradigm? And what do we love about certain episodes? A, a way into wrapping all of that up might be to say, let's look at a huge thing that they did right in all of those arenas, which is give us representation on screen 
that had not previously been there, right? That I personally look to each Star Trek show to do this. We can run through the list, um, and maybe we have before on air, but you know, we had TOS airing in the 60s with a black woman on the bridge and an Asian helmsman on the bridge, a Russian character, and pushing the, the limits of maybe what society would think wasn't possible for unity and love and acceptance. And then, you know, in TNG, we get, yes, we get a counselor role. Um, I think a lot of what TNG, the, a lot of the ways that TNG pushes this boundary is, is with gender, that we have a female doctor, that we have, at least for the first season, a female security officer, that in the first episode, and man, do I wish it had not gone away, we had um, men in skirts, <laughs> men in, in, you know, the same outfit that Troy is, is wearing in the first episode. And so I think a lot of the ways that TNG was pushing that forward was with gender. Yeah, when we get to Voyager and Deep Space Nine, again, there are some real uh, significant moves that these two shows make kind of in conjunction with one another on this front of representation. So we had running concurrently a show with a black captain and a show with with a female captain. Voyager also has a Native American. We also have the half Klingon character in Balana Torres, half Klingon, half human. Balana Torres is not only half Klingon, but she's a Latina character. And so really just a lot of wonderful stuff going on, even though as we've discussed in former episodes, you know, some of it's not always handled well, mainly Chakotay. Chakotay is, is not played by a Native American actor and the way they represent that culture as if it is a monoculture, which it is not, is, is a little problematic or a lot problematic. But then we get to Enterprise and really the big thing there is there's a dog on board. <laughs> yes, an uh, underrepresented group of Terrans uh, on Star Trek for sure. Well, I think in a lot of ways, that was the theme of Enterprise was actually to show us how fraught with identity politics the early Federation itself was, which is, I think, maybe something that Discovery is also picking up. Yeah. And they are picking it up, though, in an amazing way where they're telling that story without needing to exclude so many people from from casting or from representation. And even though Discovery isn't the show set after Voyager, after Nemesis that I wanted it to be, it is it is showing just unity and love and acceptance. And as per, you know, the Vulcan tagline, infinite diversity and infinite combinations in a way that I'm so appreciative of. Their casting, even just, you know, from B-roll, from things in the background is remarkably diverse. You mentioned, you know, we had Deep Space Nine on air and Voyager. We had a black captain, a female captain. They gave us a black female main character. It's about time. We have non-heterosexual relationships represented on the show with equal weight as heterosexual relationships and in a way that isn't ever talked about explicitly because we're imagining a future where it's all just totally great. (laughs) It's all love and we don't have to name it or other it or treat it in any way differently. We just get to enjoy it. And so that's obviously a huge thing that Discovery has done that is just absolutely wonderful. And I've already done a rundown on on former in previous episodes of every new character um, and every new bit of representation and how excited I am. But it, I think it is worth really hammering home that that is a great way that they have not diverged from the Star Trek paradigm that I am really excited about. And every new episode 
shows me that in a new way. And I continue to be grateful. Well, since we're already talking about characters, Valerie, why don't we play a round of Smooch, Mary Kill? But this time, not about a single episode, but taking into consideration these characters' journeys through this whole first half of this season. It is your turn to play the game, so maybe I'll just start by asking you to tell us who you've decided to smooch. There's so many fun people to smooch. I have to say. And when you when you go back and you rewatch the from the beginning, there are a lot more intriguing alien or non non-human characters on the bridge in different scenes that you kind of didn't notice was there. There's some blue person in one of the first episodes in the pilot on the Shenzhou. I don't think he's Andorian. I didn't see antennae. Um, I'm sure someone can answer that question for us or the internet can. I was intrigued by him. I remembered bald bridge guy. Uh, I smooched him once. He seems nice. But I think overall, when I'm thinking of it in terms of like, who do I maybe want to date a little bit? <laughs> see where it goes. I am still completely taken with Lieutenant Owasekun on the bridge. I just think she is so beautiful and she's gotten more and more lines and I just want to, I want to go to 10 forward and stare into her eyes for a little while over, over some, uh, some real alcohol, not some synthahol, to be honest <laughs> um, and see where it goes. Uh, I still, I'm, I'm very intrigued by her. I really hope we get more about her character. She played a pretty significant role during the battle in the final episode in the, the mid season finale here where Though she's not given a ton of lines, the show is not about her, as we've already talked about. There was a real sense that Lorca depends on her, that she's good at her job, that she's right where she needs to be to help the Federation win this war. Uh, and it was, it was, that was one of the things I really loved about the way that battle was filmed. Now I'm, I'm really eager to know who you want to marry. Presumably, this is going to be someone we've spent a little more time with, someone we know a little bit better. But there are a lot of choices, and I'm I'm real excited to hear what your answer is. Do you have a guess? If I had to place a bet on this, Valerie, I would guess that you're going to marry Dr. Kolber. Don't think I didn't think about it. You know, I put good thought into marrying each one of our beloved crew members. <laughs> Historically, I've been wanting, obviously, to marry Stamets. I, I will say that for now, I think that's over. I think he's not in a good place. Yes. <laughs> um, and I, I miss kind of smarmy with little bits of delightful Stamets. I think I miss the Stamets that Colbert fell in love with. And so I don't. I no longer really think he's a good choice. To be honest, Colbert is just a little too sweet for me. A little not smarmy enough for, for my tastes. I still want to marry Georgiou. I will say that I continue to be frustrated with Burnham. And given that Georgiou and Burnham were very close, that could be, you know, a problem in our relationship. It's like, ugh, do we really need to invite Burnham to this dinner party to Philippa? You know, it could be a conversation that we have. <laughs> um, but I, in rewatching the pilot, I was just like, oh, my God, I love her. What a great, balanced, fantastic captain. And she is one of the few people on the show named as a diplomat, not a soldier um, as well. And so, yeah, I'm still very taken by her. I think I think she would be an excellent choice in partner. I'll say it now. I, I wouldn't mind a, a spinoff prequel show about about her. But this is going to bring us to our final category. Uh, who are you going to kill? Really good question. Okay. 
I gave this a lot of thought. I hope I hope it's obvious that I don't pull these things out of a hat. But in preparation for for you know what we're going to talk about next, we're talking a little bit more about the Klingons. I came to a realization about something I think that the show is doing with Klingons that I have a lot of questions about for you, Glenn. And I don't want to just, you know, kill a Klingon because they're the bad guys. So I wanted to steer clear of that a little bit. So yeah, I I think I'd like to get rid of of General or Lord Cole, because especially if we draw comparisons to to Vok, to Laurel, to to Takuvma, Cole is just such an opportunist. And he is like a stereotype of a Klingon in all the negative ways. And I think while obviously there's a lot of problems with, with Klingons in general that we're seeing in the show... All the most of the other Klingons we see are much more nuanced, and we want to empathize with them. We want to see their perspective. There's kind of a way in, and Cole's just kind of a jerk, and he also gets in the way of me seeing where this whole Takuvma cult thing is going, which I'm you know excited to pick back up on again. So I'm gonna get rid of Cole. Well, that's a great pick, Valerie. It's great for a number of reasons. I was thinking about who you might pick, and. It was actually hard for me to think about someone from the main cast or really even any of the Federation characters that I would really want to get rid of. So I think you've you've done a good job of, of finding someone who's important uh, to th- th- that's worth getting rid of. But this is also a great answer because, as you point out, it very deftly transitions us into the next segment of our show today, which is to have a longer discussion about the Klingons that we see here on Star Trek Discovery, how they relate to the Klingons we see in other Trek shows, and uh, just what what we can learn about Klingons from how much the show here is focusing on them. And probably we should just pick up where your comments left off and talk about Klingon society before we talk about Klingon institutions and Klingon religion. So maybe a good place to start then, Valerie, would actually be to talk about honor in Klingon society. You know, one of the things that we see in Discovery is in one of the Burnham flashbacks where as a kid, she is in school and she is learning that Klingon society rests upon an inviolable honor-shame dynamic. And I I found that very interesting. And I have always wanted to know more about how honor and shame function in Klingon society and Klingon culture. And I think you're right to point to Cole and to Kuvma maybe being examples of different interpretations of that. Do you want to maybe uh, tell me and tell listeners a little bit more about what what it is that you see there? So there were a couple things that that I picked up on through through rewatching a bit of Discovery and through returning to some Klingon centric episodes. But I wanted to return to uh, to return to the um, Next Generation episode The Rightful Heir which is an episode in, at the end of season six of The Next Generation where Worf is, is struggling with his spirituality. And so he goes on a bit of a religious retreat in an attempt to have a vision of Kalis. And he is successful, but it's actually not a vision. It is Kalis um, or someone claiming to be Kalis. And this is where we get uh, the quote that I read early on in, in our podcast, early on in our um, in our series about the point of light and, and the prophecy of Kalis's return that, that led to Kuvma to light the beacon. But what's really, it, it turns out in this episode that, that Kalis is actually a clone that some, um, some priests or some high religious figures have used genetic material from, you know, the sword, a sword of Kalis or something. And, 
and cloned him and input into his mind the teachings of the sacred text to serve kind of as memories for Kalis. And one thing that I thought was really interesting is that this clone Kalis's big thing is that the Klingon Empire has lost its joy, which doesn't sound like something you would think about for a Klingon, right? <laughs> right, yeah. So there's honor and there's the honor-shame dynamic and there's glory and there's battle. But this Kalos really, he wants he wants Klingons to laugh. You know, he does, he unites them in several rallying, rallying cries of we are Klingon, which then they shout back at him, which I have to think um, Discovery is picking up on. But when they get super serious and when there's there's no joy or they don't say love, but almost love in their heart, he gets frustrated. He's like, we're warriors. We take pride in this. You know, there can be joy in our hearts as we do these things. And it gets to the core of, I think, what they're kind of doing with the Takuvma character, which even in The Next Generation is a contrast to what is typically Klingon. And when you say that Takuvma seems to embody this for you, I mean, he doesn't seem like a particularly joyful character to me. In fact, he's a very serious character. But are you are you thinking of the love that he has for his followers such that he mummifies them, that he prepares their bodies for burial? Is that is that where you see Takuvma embracing this this attitude that Kalis has? Maybe the, the better way to put it is that there's a certain amount of, of pride and honor that comes with being militaristic and being a little bit hateful of non-Klingons. And what clone Kalis is reminding us and what Takuvma is reminding us of is that that doesn't mean that there can't be just a general respect and caring for each other as Klingons, that, that that hatred doesn't have to be turned against one another in order to be what separates Klingons from others or, you know, to be used to turn against non-Klingon peoples. Oh, I see. Yeah. So that's a, that is a great parallel then, for sure. But what I wanted to say about that is that Cole really embodies this other idea of Klingon that we've gotten to know of opportunistic, of selfish, of um, militaristic of really just in general unconcerned. Mary, just in general, what we might consider disrespectful. And in fact, there is in in the original series episode where we first meet the Klingons, Errand of Mercy, the Klingon captain or guy in charge of taking over the planet in that episode, who I think is named Kor, <laughs> K-O-R, he says that sentimentality and mercy are emotions of peace. And, you know, the Klingons are people that are that strive to always be at war. And, and there's no room for sentimentality in that. Whereas Takuvma has a lot of room for sentimentality towards other Klingons. And I think that really a main theme that they are exploring is the difference between Klingons who always want to be at war, period. And that is represented in the Cole character. And Klingons that want to be at war for a cause and not amongst one another. Cole doesn't care about civil war. Cole just cares about power. Whereas Takuvma cares about war, but internal Klingon unity. Yeah, I think that's right. There's a, a real sense, I mean, we, we get told explicitly in the, the finale that 
Cole is striving to become the head of a unified Klingon state. Presumably, this is something that he's always been striving for, and that his peers, the other, the heads of the 23 other great houses, are also striving for in some way. And for him, the war that Takuvma has begun is an opportunity that there seems to be a recognition that unless the Klingons unify, the Federation will easily win. The Federation will be able to make separate pieces with with individual houses, and that if they're not unified, they can't they can't keep up with the Federation. And so this is an opportunity for him to make a case that he should be in charge, which he has done, you know, very because he has access to invisibility screens or cloaking devices, as we'll eventually come to call them. Yeah, and it, but I do think it's worth, you know, again, and sorry to be a broken record, but pointing out that the unity that Cole wants serves Cole's purpose. Cole wants to be, have the most power, be the emperor. That's how unity serves him. Takuvma sees that unity serves to protect them. And I want to bring this around to talking about Klingon religion, which is something that we haven't talked about in a long time that we, I think we have teased that we would, we have always meant to in several episodes there are a couple things with Klingon religion here that I want to talk about, but one thing that occurred to me, I was, while I was re-watching the premiere with a, with a friend who was visiting a few weeks ago, at the exact time that I was preparing to talk about the Crusades with my uh, Survey of the Middle Ages course this semester, and there were a number of parallels that I saw uh, that I that didn't occur to me while I was watching the premiere when it aired, where most of the parallels that I saw were to to fascism and in particular to a, a, a national socialism. But Takuma actually uses the word crusade in his speech when we see him in the premiere, which I think is real interesting. But the real parallel that I want to see here, the real parallel that I want to point out is that the first crusade in particular grows out of a religious reform movement in Western Europe that is uh, a, a component of which is called the peace and truce of God in which religious figures, uh, clerics, priests and bishops and monks are attempting to preach peace to a warrior caste whose whole identity is based around fighting each other, trying to steal each other's stuff, trying to feel honored and to have glory by having supremacy at the expense of any kind of unity uh, within Western Europe. And 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 one of the thing one of the high costs of this is Peasants and merchants, people living in cities, are all all live in terror because they don't know if they're going to become be a casualty in these incessant wars. And so there is this reform movement called the Gregorian Reform in the the tenth and eleventh centuries, and the First Crusade is a direct result of this. Uh, I some scholars, in fact, maybe traditionally many scholars have even seen in the speech that Pope Urban II gives, of which we have three accounts as pointing to the idea that if these pe- these people's social identity and their institutional purpose is fighting why don't we give them someplace else to go fight yeah interesting this is a really really wonderful parallel and it's amazing to think about what star trek has done with the klingons and how many different how about how many different cultures in different cultural moments the klingons have served to represent throughout the course of the series but you're right and in 
in the Next Generation episode that I was talking about, the rightful heir, that is all about religion. And a lot of what Worf struggles with through his journey on the Next Generation and on Deep Space Nine is faith and spirituality. And even then, the clone Kalis, the the deal that is struck between the priests or the religious figures that created clone Kalis and Galron, who is the chancellor of the Klingon Empire. So, you know, the the head honcho of the Council of the 24 Houses, is that they let clone Kalis be emperor. Emperor being, as they say, a title that has not, a seat that has not been filled in three centuries. Um, but the reason they come to to that conclusion is it's a it's a title empty of power, but they needed a moral leader for the empire such, so that they wouldn't fall into civil war. And Kalis serves that purpose. And that is very similar to what Takuvma is trying to do. That's a really great parallel. I'm, I'm glad that you caught that. And you're right. We know from the TOS movies, Star Trek VI, The Undiscovered Country in particular, and from the Next Generation era, that, the, that although the, the Klingons are united in one state at this point, their head of state is a, a chancellor, uh, which is to say that he is presumably someone who, in fact, we know for sure, he is chosen through uh, means of this representative body of the Klingon High High Council, that he is not a monarch, he is not an emperor in any way. Right. And, you know, this line, you know, we haven't had an emperor in three centuries tells us we're not going to get one in the course of discovery, <laughs> right? unless it's in some sort of mirror universe or something. Well, that's a great point, Valerie. And so I think I think we could maybe even use that just to transition into our prediction segment. What do you think then is going to happen with the Klingons? How is the Klingon war going to be resolved? How are we going to, how, I guess, really, in what way, how do we get from the Klingons that we see in the premiere of Discovery to the Klingons that we see in the TOS episode, Errand of Mercy?, and is there a role for Volk still in this, who we haven't seen in a long time? There's this great line that comes through Sarek in the first episode that had a lot in it that we weren't able at the time to see was in it because we didn't know where the show was going yet. But he says this to to Burnham when she's questioning how the Vulcans um, were able to achieve diplomatic relations with the Klingons. Um, you know, she's talking about how they're in front of the Klingon ship of the dead, but, you know, they're not engaged in battle yet. They haven't fired. Um, the Klingons have not fired on the Federation. And Sarek says this, you are describing something out of the ordinary restraint in the face of conflict. When a civilization acts in opposition to its instincts, it may be under the influence of something or someone new. Great unifiers are few and far between, but they do come. Often such leaders will need a profound cause for their followers to rally around. And so that's Sarah kind of predicting the existence of Takuvma and, and then and then Vok and also Lorel. So to answer your question about where we're going, I wonder if, because in TOS, while the Klingons remain a feared enemy, there are several mentions of the Federation being in diplomatic negotiations with Klingons. I wonder if... Lorel and whatever is going to happen with Vok appearing or not appearing again are our way into that. I wonder if Lorel's dissatisfaction with the coal type figures in the Empire 
opens up an avenue for diplomatic relations. I wonder if Laurel's love for Tyler is part of that. I wonder if Laurel being on Discovery is how some of that comes to be. Yeah, that's a really great thought. I, that that wasn't maybe the direction that I was thinking. You know, when I was when I was coming up with that question, that wasn't really the way I was thinking about it. But you're absolutely right. I think that there there might actually be quite a bit hinging on on what we think Laurel is up to on Discovery. I think it's fair to say that I'm more skeptical of Laurel than maybe you are. I I didn't read her wish to defect as sincere. I thought it was a ploy, but as I recall correctly, you you were a little more on board with the sincerity of it. Uh, But it would be neat to see her actually as being someone who is able to work as maybe something of an ambassador for House Mokai. She holds the potential to be a bridge, right? She doesn't want to join the Federation and she doesn't like them very much, but she doesn't like what's happening to her culture in the form of, you know, the coals of the world. She's ready for something new. And so I think she holds possibility. In this scenario, then, do you think that we'll see in Discovery how the Klingon Great Houses, the Klingon High Council starts electing chancellors, starts choosing chancellors? Will we actually see the creation of a unified Klingon state in Discovery? It's not a satisfactory answer, but probably the most truthful answer is we're going to get we're going to be set up we're going to move towards it because we know we have to get there in some form by TOS where you know the empire is still fraught with some elements of disunity but we do have a unified a unified empire in a sense by the time we get to the original series so i think the bigger question here that i still have is is this show going to be about klingons because we spent the first half of, of this this first story arc thinking it definitely was, and now I'm not so sure. And I think a big part of why we have questions about our, whether or not we're even going to see this anymore is because we don't know where the discovery is right now. And I think maybe this is something we should speculate on uh, a little bit more. Where do you think discovery is at the end of Into the Forest, I go? I have no idea. I have no idea. I don't even know how I would have enough information to make a reasonable a reasonable guess. And, and maybe you, you are more willing to take that leap of faith. I just wonder, are the Klingon, is the war the backstory to this show? Or is it the story of this show? Did we just watch nine episodes of what the show will be like? Or did we just watch a nine episode pilot? And you're right. All of that hinges on, wait, where are we now? What's going on? Do you have a good answer? I think that the fact that Laurel is on the ship, and, and to think about it from a meta perspective, it's not that Laurel's on the ship, it's that the writers put her on the ship. So I think the fact that the writers put her on the ship and that something is going on with Tyler's experience as a prisoner of, of war, those things are clearly being set up to be important. So I think it's fair to say that something is going to, that the Klingons are going to remain important in the show. Right. But is it going to be a show about the war with Klingons? Or is it going to be a show that heavily features Klingons? Yeah, I mean, right. Exactly. And this is a great question because, you know, as I predicted last time we were recording, many people on the internet have started to put forward theories that everything we've seen so far has been in an alternate universe. 
and that it's only now that Stamets has brought the Discovery into the Prime universe. And so maybe we won't ever go back to what we've been seeing. Now, I don't subscribe to this. I'll just tell you and tell listeners. I don't I don't subscribe to that. I think that's unlikely to be what's happening, but it could be. That's a real possibility. You know, but I think it's equally possible that that they've gone into some other parallel universe here and that we are going to get several episodes of seeing that as an accident or seeing that as a misfortune, something that's not good and the the crew struggling to get back. I, so I, I, and I think something like that is much more likely. I think that the discovery will get back to our Klingon story eventually. I do not, alas, I do not think this is going to be Star Trek colon sliders as much as you and I might enjoy that. So you don't in any way subscribe to the possibility that they have moved through time, like they're in the past or they're in the future of the same timeline? Well, to be honest, yes, that's not one that I've given a lot of thought to. It's certainly quite possible and that would be really interesting what if they have gone forward in time and they've they've gone forward to a future in which the klingons won this war that would actually be really interesting yeah or another possibility is maybe they've gone back in time and this is how we're going to learn a little bit more about Lorca's past maybe Lorca's trying to fix something oh that's real interesting well i think that brings up another great question about this valerie which is was this spore drive accident an accident at all, or did someone bring them wherever they are on purpose? And you were speculating uh, in our last episode and, and really showed some good evidence that Lorca did this. Uh, but really, as soon as we released that episode, a number of our listeners uh, jumped on the forums and wrote to us to say that uh, that we had misunderstood the conversation between Stamets and Lurka, and that Stamets did this. Stamets knew what he was up to, that Stamets didn't that Stamets is a junkie. He's addicted to these spores. He didn't want to give it up. He didn't want to go be poked and prodded. Uh, by by Starfleet doctors, and he's the one who has taken them to to someplace. Yeah, and that's a fascinating idea. I'm so grateful that that our listeners put it out there. Yeah, fascinating. And these are just some of you know a multitude of possibilities. What I'll say is, I hope we're in an, a parallel universe, no matter who brought us there. And my hope is that this this parallel universe, this mirror universe, whatever it is, gives us perspective on the true timeline that is used to fight the war or talk to the Klingons or change something about someone and when we return to it, that it's it's in the service of getting perspective of what could have been. Well, I would be super on board with a storyline like that. I have one last question here for you in this speculations and predictions category. I want to take us full circle, maybe not full circle, but most of the way, most of a circle back to um, our first episodes on Discovery, where you and I and I think the entire internet were spending a lot of time speculating that Lorca is in Section 31. But as we talked about at the top of this show, a lot of the evidence that we had for that seems to come from the way that Burnham was seeing Discovery, and that as she becomes more comfortable there, more familiar on Discovery, we stop seeing Lorca in that light, I think. So I want to put the question to you, Valerie. Do you think Lorca is actually in Section 31? 
Yes. <laughs> yes, yes, I do. I suppose it's possible that the entire ship is related to Section 31 and that even Lorca himself doesn't know that. But as much as I've been kind of disappointed that they seem to have dropped, yeah, the scary, gloomy, secret um, secret ops Section 31 stuff, I, it has to still be there. And the main evidence for that for me is the badges. Because we've seen with this show that the badges that each officer has are slightly different based on their role on the ship. Like there's a little bit of a design difference through a cutout figure in the badge. Have you seen this? Oh, yeah. Yeah, they're gorgeous. And when we first get on the Discovery, we see those soldiers guarding something with just the pure black badge. So we know that badges differentiate something and for a reason. And we saw those badges. So I think we're not done with that yet in some form. And that's, I think, the most I can speculate about it. I think these are great points of evidence. And I these are intrigues that were raised early on that then we've left behind. You were pointing to this earlier that there is so, so much of this actually in these first nine episodes of planting seeds that for the future that maybe will get watered or maybe they won't. And uh, this is one, though, that I would I would love to see uh, blossom into into something uh, blossom into a, a, a protracted storyline at some point. Glenn, do you have a hard yes or no, or feel like you have a firm reading on any of this? So the only thing that I would point to as being real counter evidence is that Lorca does seem concerned that Admiral Cornwell can actually take his command from him, or at least she carries weight with people who can. So that suggests to me that Lorca does not feel like he's operating on the secret order's or on the orders of the secret organization that runs Starfleet behind behind the backs of the actual civilian federation government. So not neither a, neither a yes nor a no, but just a, just a one bit of evidence that seems to me to be a little bit of a of a monkey wrench in in the in this reading. Uh, but I'd be excited to see how all of this plays out. Yeah, we gave two really unsatisfying answers. <laughs> Um, I like, I wanted you to, to, to convince me of something. I think maybe you wanted me to convince you of something. We've convinced no one of anything, but, but I hope it doesn't go away. I do think it's interesting. Yeah. Same here. And it's, it's clear that we're both, uh, uh trained scholars who want to, want yeah. to weigh all the evidence very carefully. And, uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, but something that I would rather do something that I do when I'm done with a whole day of scholaring is have a drink, Glenn. Do you have one for us? So I have a cocktail for us that is meant to summarize or embody the entirety of this first arc. So I decided to take it as a cue here, or as a, as a cocktail inventing prompt, the notion of the discovery itself as a mad science vessel. And so I did a little bit of mad sciencing myself this week in preparation for this. And I hope you're ready for it. What did you do? I made a mushroom infused gin. 
What? Uh, Ew. (laughs) (laughs) That doesn't sound good. Well, you're not the first person to give me that response uh, (laughs) on trying to do this. But actually, it turned out absolutely delicious. I'll say I also made a mushroom-infused bourbon just in case the gin didn't work out. The drink I had in mind was to use gin, but I made the bourbon as well. The bourbon is actually pretty drinkable on its own, but I actually think that the gin is even better. That really surprises me because mushroom and bourbon, they have an earthiness that that I would pair. Oh, gosh. Glenn, what did you do? Yeah. So obviously, I picked the <laughs> the mushrooms because we of the, the spore drive. And spore drive is what I'm calling this cocktail. I used chanterelle mushrooms. And I, I did this as a nod to Ash Tyler because both Ash Tyler and chanterelle mushrooms come from the Pacific Northwest. Oh, my gosh. Um, it, it actually gets a real cool <laughs> yellow color. And uh, it, it is a little bit earthy but actually uh, it really almost comes off as as an earthy sweetness that contrasts real nicely with uh, the juniper in the gin I was skeptical that it was going to work and I was delightfully surprised at actually how good it is uh, so now I will give you the rest of the drink. This is your new tagline. Glenn, willing to waste gin for science. <laughs> yes. So let me tell you what the cocktail is. So I have made a very boozy, very big martini drink here with our chanterelle mushroom infused gin. So the drink uses three parts of that. And then it uses a third part of yellow chartreuse, which is a, a made drink made with mountain herbs and a little bit of honey. I thought that uh, one, this would pair well with the flavors, but also would jive very nicely with the John Murr passage that became so important in the finale and which is going to drive where we're going in the future. So those two components need to be stirred in ice stirred very gently in ice but the third component to this cocktail is absinthe and uh, I think that is fairly obvious that that is there because if ever there was a liquor that's going to help you magically teleport and see through space and time it's the green fairy oh man it works so well too bad magic to make the sanest man go mad is already the title of a cocktail. <laughs> it's true. So the absinthe here doesn't go in the drink, which you want because it's such a powerful flavor. What oh, you, is it an absinthe rinse? It's going to be an absinthe rinse. And uh, so, so while your other two components are chilling in your uh, cocktail shaker, your cocktail mixer, you do a, a little bit, use about maybe an eighth of a teaspoon of absinthe, put it in the glass and spread that around on the glass and then get rid of the excess. Then you stir up your drink and you pour it into that glass that has the absinthe rinse on the, the surface, on the interior surface of the glass. And it is somehow delicious. It tastes, it's, it's herbal and earthy, but also sweet at the same time. Yeah, I'm, I'm dying to know if it's good. <laughs> I am intrigued. I would order that. I, of course. How could you not? I hope some of it is left the next time that, that I come visit you. I would love to drink this drink. Well, before I get any, any more mad with mad science power, I think that's going to do it for this episode. But we will be back in early January, refreshed and hopefully hungry for spores. Or thirsty for them. <laughs> yes, possibly. Uh, and I just want to say to our listeners, hey, Thanks for listening. Uh, I've been really overwhelmed by the positive response to the Star Trek conversations that I get to have with one of my best friends. And uh, I'm glad to have our listeners along with us for the ride. 
Yeah, we are really grateful and really touched and so happy that this helps you enjoy or process discovery uh, and that you let us do this for you. So thank you so much. And until January, I'm Glenn McDorman. And I'm Valerie Hoagland. And as always, you can find us and our other creative projects on claytemplemedia.com. And please do check out that Gene Wolfe Literary Podcast. Thank you for one more plug, Valerie. I think I, I will hold off on shamelessly promoting my other projects any further. Well, until January, everybody, stay spacey.